This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The Mayor's Town Hall. This is something we've been looking forward to for a long time because there has been so much happening uh, in Hamilton politics that uh, we wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, have a discussion with Mayor Fred Eisenberger about that. We will go to the phone calls. Morning, Mr. Mayor. How are you doing today? Happy New Year, uh, Bill. Yeah, First opportunity. Seen you for a while. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 2018 is upon us. It's going to be an interesting year. I got to ask you about this. You and I uh, bumped into each other last week, and you were telling me that you were actually in Hawaii <laughs> when that uh, nuclear threat was, was happening. You guys were actually having a couple of days off and down there? Yeah, my uh, my brother lives out in BC, has a timeshare there, and he's been bu- bugging us for years to, uh, to come down and uh, spend some time with him. So we did. We spent some time in Maui, and it was uh, wonderful. Uh, save and accept the uh, the ICBM scare that uh, that certainly uh, you know kind of rattled our chain a little bit. But uh, you know what? We we uh, we kind of sat at the breakfast table. It was early morning, probably about nine o'clock or so, if I remember correctly. And uh, we kind of looked at each other and said, "Let's double up on the bacon." Uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen here? <laughs> Give me more whipped cream. Uh, you know, let's put some more uh, Baileys into the coffee. And uh, you know, we just kind of carried on. I I you know, I at the time I didn't think it was real. Uh, I thought it was some sort of a hoax or maybe some hacking or something or another. And, and the reality was that if you didn't hear anything within five minutes or so, because these things travel at the speed of light, beyond the speed of light, uh, then uh, nothing was going to happen. So uh, it rattled us for a few moments, but then we just kind of got on with getting on. Life goes on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, others reacted differently to it. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, obviously uh, we'll find out someday how, how this all transpired, but uh, I, I got a kick out of the... The, the notice not shortly thereafter that the person, whoever hit the button, uh, got reassigned. I, yeah. I imagine they're in lower suburbia by now, or, or Siberia, I should say. Strange goings on. Yep. Uh, 905-645-3221, start 9900. A, a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about here, uh, but let's let's start it off with uh, what the topic of my, my commentary from about an hour ago, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the possible appeal of the OMB hearing about the war boundary issue, which I thought was behind us. But uh, apparently some councillors just uh, don't let this thing go. You've already voted on this, haven't you? We have. And, uh, and you know, and I understand that there's some consternation uh, on this in some quarters. Uh, you know, a lot of that consternation could have been avoided had we uh, picked one of the consultants' recommendations that I supported uh, to add an additional ward on the, on the, uh, the mountain uh, quite some time ago. Some of the... Uh, Councillor Whitehead is uh, one of the kind of the, the, the most uh, you know ardent uh, you know arguers that there's been a disparity in the uh, the population base and that ought to be fixed. So it's kind of ironic that he uh, seems to be supporting a an appeal here. But notwithstanding, um, you know this uh, these are difficult things, and I I still say to this day that uh, it's unfortunate that they put council in a position to uh, to have to make this decision. Ultimately, it ought to be done by an independent commission, not, not unlike what the federal and provincial governments do on a regular basis, where they have an independent body that makes a decision and everybody lives by it. Uh, they should be doing the same for municipalities, because you're, you're asking councillors to, uh, to uh, you know, vote against, in some instances, against their own self-interest. And I, you know, I, as much as we all like to be, you know, pure and true, and, uh, you know, that's a difficult thing to do, and councils ought not be put in that position. So I would say, uh, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we don't kick this, uh, this down, down the road again, because an appeal could actually set this past the next election, which means it's another four years before we get a readjustment of the, uh, the kind of the population uh, voting base. So I hope that doesn't happen, but uh, they're entitled to make an appeal, and uh, we'll see what happens. Well, and, and I mentioned in the commentary that I'm, in, I'm among the disgruntled here because I'm going to be moved, apparently, uh, from uh, what I thought was my ward or my riding, uh, which I thought was rather bizarre. But, I mean, you know, that ends the breaks, I guess, when things like this happen. But the chances of actually the OMB doing anything about this, 
are, are pretty slim. And that, that's simply because of the logistics involved in this. And I, I know it's easy to play on the emotions uh, for people that are angered about this and say, well, we're going to appeal this. Yeah, you go and do that. But you, you can't just say, well, I don't like the decision, so I'm going to appeal it. Because the OMB says, I don't care if you like it or not. Yeah, and I, my, my sense of it is they'll probably attempt, uh, you know, and this is a costly potentially, uh, an attempt at a judicial review, which is to, to look at errors in law in the, in the decision. And, you know, there may or may not be, uh, you know, egregious errors in law. We just, we, we're, we're not 100% sure. Uh, and it's a, it's a difficult one to test. And, again, if, uh, if the appeal goes on too long, then you, you are actually putting it outside of the electoral process coming up in, uh, in October. And that means another four years of this kind of bickering about the same kind of issue uh, and still no ultimate decision. And, and to be fair, you, you're, you're impacted. Uh, virtually every ward in the city of Hamilton has been adjusted in some way or another. Uh, so, you know, if, if, if we're talking about fairness, then uh, let's talk about how, how it impacts everybody, not just, uh, not just Ward 14. Well, others have made some political hay about this in the past. And, uh, you know, there was the, the, the free Flamborough movement that was out some time ago. And, uh, and even, you know, Ted McBeacon, uh, when he was the mayor of Flamborough, uh, suggested that he was going to do something about this. Uh, there was going to be an appeal. The province was going to review this, yada, 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 yada. Nothing is happening about this. The ward boundary thing is something that's always going to be controversial. The city of Toronto went through this. Every city goes through this. And I agree with you that I don't think it should be the city's responsibility, the council's responsibility to do this. Right. But it has to happen nonetheless. Yeah, and, and, and it's true. Uh, you, know, you can't continue to have a disparity in terms of population and, and elected representation that uh, goes from... 16,000 residents in one ward and 60 or 70,000 in another, and, and the vote for both of those representatives is exactly the same. That, that is an unequal representation that, uh, that just can't stand. So, you know, to, to suggest that we ought to do away with it this time around and not, not deal with that issue, I, I, I just can't support. Uh, if, if everyone had supported uh, an additional ward on the mountain, that would have been a significant uh, positive change. That would have uh, prevented a lot of this, uh, you know, ongoing consternation and and an elimination of another ward in Flamborough. Quite frankly, that was the original recommendation, and uh, unfortunately, that uh, that's not where where the OMB ended up. And you know, council f- knew full well that this was going to be challenged, and so a lot of them had already washed their hands of the issue and pushed it off to the OMB and let an impartial body decide. And and you know, there's some fairness associated with that. I think that that takes it out of the hands of councillors and puts it into an ar- impartial bodies, uh, you know, hands and have them look at, you know, what makes most sense from an impartial, non-prejudicial, non-emotional kind of way. That's the kind of uh, boundary review that ought to happen in any event. And uh, that's what we ended up with. And so I can understand that some are not happy with it. I think most citizens are going to be impacted in some measure or another, but everyone's going to have representation. Uh, you may not like it, uh, but again, this idea about rural representation is, is seemingly uh, what the foundation for this appeal may well be, uh, if in fact they do launch this thing. Right now it's just grumbling, I guess, but mm-hmm. but I, I don't know that that's a solid argument, uh, because what the OMB is going to come back, or anybody is going to go back and say, is listen, those rural representatives that are on council now, they can run in those new wards. Uh, and if there's enough voters that, that think they're the proper representative, then they'll be there. Right. And, uh, but but every you know every suburban ward, uh, Ancaster, Glanbrook, or Bimbrook, or Stony Creek, uh, Dundas, have all had a rural component to them. 
So this is, is not, there's not an issue of, of, you know, there hasn't been a rural representative. There's been a mix of rural, urban, uh, you know, all the way through. And that's what's consistently being held up here in terms of the, uh, the representation that's being uh, uh, advocated for now. So, you know, the, the fact that uh, or, or the notion that <clears throat> an elected representatives can't represent the rural community unless they're a farmer, uh, I'm not so sure that holds. And you know what? Uh, uh, agribusiness is, you know, one of the top three economic development uh, objectives of the city of Hamilton. Uh, we're, we've got the green belt legislation in place that uh, everyone supports. We're protecting the agricultural lands as much as possible, and, and agriculture is one of the, the highest economic development opportunities that we have that we continue to want to grow and, and nurture. So uh, I don't know that you can make the argument that agriculture isn't in the mindset of uh, all members of council, and that wouldn't be in the mindset of someone that represents both urban and rural. Well, we'll see where it goes. Like I say, at this point, it's just some grumbling. You actually have to file, I guess, if you're going to do an appeal. Yep. And I'm not even sure who would hear the appeal. And uh, so on and on it goes. It's a, it's a uh, onerous task to try to do something and get the OMB to overturn in almost anything. And uh, is, did you get any sense at all during this debate, if you could just refresh our memories, mm-hmm. about what time frame is in place here? I mean, is there a point where the city's going to say, well, you can't appeal right now because we have to get the election ballots ready? Yeah, my, my sense of it was that uh, by March, if, if, if they don't have a clear direction by March, that there just won't be enough time to set up the electoral process to get ready for an October election. You know, you can imagine it takes time. You have to change all of the... Uh, the, uh, the, the ward roles, you have to change all of the voter uh, voter registration roles, all of that has to change, and that takes a, you know, a considerable amount of time. The boundaries have to be codified, uh, and, and preparations have to be made for the next election. And my understanding was that if it isn't uh, finally nailed down by March, then, uh, then we really are kicking it down, down the road, and uh, we won't have a decision on this for another four years. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here on the Mayor's Town Hall. The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. Uh, go to your calls in just a couple of minutes at 905-645-3221, star 9900. Emails and tweets, of course, your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, from Paul, can you justify uh, backing Councillor Ferguson to be a uh, police board chair once again? You know, I can. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Councillor Ferguson's done a, you know, an outstanding job uh, as councillor. And if, if the standard is that, uh, you know, if, uh, when one of us trips on our own tongue, that, uh, that disqualifies us from being, uh, you know, uh, taking a leadership role, then, uh, you know, most of us would, would be disqualified, quite frankly. Uh, you know what? Uh, the councillor the, the uh, made a couple of uh, gaps at the end of last year, and he's atoned for that, and I think that's appropriate. Uh, he has done a fabulous job on the fiscal side. The, you know, the budgets that have come in on the police services board have been the lowest ever. Uh, quite frankly, we started started at a lower point, and they're the lowest ever. Even though you know people love to have policing, but not, don't necessarily want to pay the the freight for uh, for policing. He's done a great job of getting those costs down, and he uh, he manages the uh, the board well. So um, I think there's one more year to go in this term, and I thought it was appropriate that he finish out as police service board chair. Are we going to finish? The, the drama on the police services board I is, hope that, so. is that behind us? I mean, because that became the story. You've just talked about this. I've talked to Councillor Whitehead, who also sits on that board. He was listing some of the accomplishments. I said, "Why? Are we, we're not talking about that, though. We're talking about this councillor versus this board member, and on and on it goes. You've been far, far too much time spending time and and, and appeals with you know uh, the the squabbling that's going on in there." I I fully agree, and I keep admonishing my uh, fellow 
board members that, uh, you know, we ought not be dealing in personalities. We ought be dealing with police service board issues, uh, policing issues. That's what we're there for. And unfortunately, uh, there are some conflicts on the board between, between individuals that just doesn't seem to let up. I hope it stops. Uh, we need people that are concerned about policing in our community, not whether or not, uh, you know, someone's said something that, uh, that uh, someone's taken offense to. Uh, you know what, we, we can get into the cult of personalities, but uh, the reality is that we're all should be there for the same reason. Uh, that's certainly why I'm there, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraging all members to, uh, to, to look at police services issues, stay away from the personality issues, and just get on with the business of policing. Six four five thirty two twenty one star nine nine hundred uh, on uh, Twitter at chml Bill Kelly Steve on Twitter says uh, what are the mayor's thoughts on term limits for council members? Well, I, I've always said that I believe in term limits. Uh, you know, I think uh, two terms is sufficient for uh, most uh, members of council to uh, to get some of their issues uh, you know uh, dealt with. Uh, but you know what? Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's not something that uh, this this council is going to actually adopt. Uh, it will only be adopted if the province of Ontario sets it into uh, into policy as part of the uh, municipal uh, act, and uh, it's not likely that that's going to happen. So it's always an interesting debate. Uh, uh, the reality is that the likelihood of that uh, coming to uh, to re- to fruition is uh, remote. So, uh, but I, you know what? I've always been a believer in term limits, whether it's self-imposed or imposed by the uh, provincial government. I think doing your work and getting it in, and uh, and then refreshing the process. By, by turning over the representation, I think is healthy. It's not unlike the American presidential model, where every, four, every eight years you know there's going to be a change. And that change is uh, invigorating, uh, sometimes uh, demoralizing, which we can see in the current, current situation, but, but it's invigorating nonetheless where you get a whole new cast of people and, and they uh, bring new ideas and new thoughts and new energy to the process. And I think that's a healthy thing. But the reality is the, 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 the likelihood of it happening is, uh, is almost uh, zero. Well, as evidenced by the fact that uh, you may remember when, well, we just mentioned Ted McMeekin a few minutes ago, uh, when he was municipal affairs minister uh, for the uh, the province, uh, he basically gave every community in this province the opportunity to, to change the way that they're elected. Mm-hmm. And, and I think only one of them took him up on it, one community in the whole province. I think it was London, I think, if yeah. I recall. Yeah. 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 Uh, and and that, was, that was a voting process. But, I mean, yep. nobody said, yeah, let's do this. Electoral reform, great idea. I mean, we no. can't even get you know, we can't even get a, a decent argument here about where the ward boundary should be, let alone how we're going to elect Well, people. it's another one of those issues where you're not going to get uh, elected uh, councillors to, to make that decision. It's probably not appropriate that they do. So the only way that it actually gets done is by some other body like the province of Ontario through some other process um, makes that ultimate decision. And the likelihood of that happening uh, now or in into the future is probably a very, very small, if, if, if not remote. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, very quickly though, Mr. Mayor, before we uh, get into that, uh, the concern about safety on the Red Hill and the link, of course, uh, is an ongoing discussion and debate. And I know that uh, committee dealt with that, and it's going to go to council this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to put the barriers up there, uh, much to the consternation of an awful lot of folks. What's your stand on that? Well, I'm, I don't. I don't believe that barriers are going to make a significant difference. Uh, you know, there are other ways that we can, uh, you know, create some barriers. Uh, somebody, somebody suggested, uh, you know, plantings of trees in the middle of the the, the, the causeway. But uh, you know, I'm I, I, I'm I'm not a believer that the barriers are going to make a significant difference. I think speed. 
uh, and people driving at an appropriate uh, speed, giving the conditions, is going to make all the difference. We've taken a, a lot of time and effort to uh, remind people that it's a 90 kilometer per hour, not 110 or 120. This is not a provincial highway. This is a local uh, local uh, connector uh, regional road, so they ought to treat it that way, and uh, hopefully speed will uh, slow things down. You know, ironically, when I was in Hawaii, their, their maximum speed is 45 miles an hour everywhere. <clears throat> everybody's very calm, everybody's very peaceful, and they have very few accidents. And so speed, speed does make a difference, and uh, people need to slow it down and, uh, and uh, measure the conditions that are out there. And, you know, the conditions change. Uh, you know, roads get slippery when the, when the first rain hits. Uh, be mindful of that and slow down and, uh, you know, take control of your vehicle. Uh, when the, uh, the snow flies, then the conditions happen there too. So I think there are other things that we can do rather than getting into, uh, you know, a great big barrier in the middle of that road. And I don't think it's going to pre- prevent any major accident. Okay, we can pick up that discussion. We'll get into Amazon and many other issues with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Frank, you're going to be first up for the mayor. How are you this morning, Frank? Yeah, I'm just fine. Uh, uh, good morning, gentlemen. Um, I'd like to ask uh, the mayor, the, with regard to the new illuminated sign that's to be positioned in front of City Hall, yep. uh, was there any thought as to having that sign in a higher elevation in the city, um, so people that uh, are flying over can see it or it can be more visual, uh, in particularly in light of the fact that we're not too far off from becoming a condo high um, city down in that area, mm-hmm. which will dwarf that sign from view. And the, uh, the frequency of people that go there are this the pretty well standard group of people that frequent the area of, uh, of the city, whereas if it was elevated, it would be seen by flyovers. And I also would like to know, if there is any comparison that you may have had that would prove that there would be a, a benefit to that sign, and, and what are the, what would you conceive to be the, the benefit of that sign being illuminated there, if you please, Will? All right, thank you. Uh, uh, so, you know, one of the one of the issues was cost, and uh, putting it on uh, the Escarmort or some other location was far more costly, unfortunately, to uh, to get placed there and uh, in terms of hookups and landing it there. Uh, it really uh, does add to the cost, and, and we were looking at, you know, having private sector contributions uh, make this happen, and so that's actually happened, uh, but the cost would have uh, virtually doubled to uh, to get it to uh, be located in some other location. Uh, beyond that, in terms of, um, you know, what the value is, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's an image issue. It's, a, it's definitely a feel-good issue. It was, uh, it was one that council had, uh, had kind of decided they were interested in doing but uh, didn't want to bear the cost and uh, I took it upon myself in partnership with a number of other private sector uh, business people to uh, to do some fundraising and uh, and get uh, you know enough money pulled together to actually create this sign and uh, you know and, and it does speak to uh, where we are as a community it does speak to a point of pride it does speak to a desire for many people uh, that come and visit uh, or have uh, have visitors come to the city of Hamilton that want to take them to somewhere significant. And the usual spot is up on the escarpment. Uh, now they can take them to City Hall and take a picture in front of the uh, the, the sign that says uh, where they are and what they're doing and, and, and how they're uh, appreciating where they are. And lastly, when we have events uh, in front of City Hall, and there's a lot of events that happen uh, right in, in front of our 
major civic center, that uh, that can be a backdrop to uh, to the, the the whole event as well. And we can light it up in various different colors to reflect uh, events that are happening currently in our community. So uh, from all of those perspectives, I would say uh, this was the best, most affordable choice. If we had another, uh, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, we could have located it in some. Uh, more higher profile location like on the escarpment, but uh, the hookup costs, the electricity costs, the uh, getting it uh, getting it fired up and uh, landed and planted there would have been far more costly. Do you know of any other manip- uh, municipal uh, area that has or city that has such a sign and has proven to it being a, a benefit, even though it, it was more costly to put it higher, but what the return on that sign would sort of projectively be? Uh, if I could say that, uh, yeah. could you comment? I'm going to I'm going to uh, pass off, uh, yeah. hang up here, and and uh, listen to you on the air. Thanks, Thank Frank. You for your Th- thanks, Frank. I mean, I, I don't know that we've had an objective look at uh, the return uh, on a sign like this. I mean, the return is really how you know how does the community feel about it, and uh, you know, are they do they appreciate the the fact that we're reflecting Hamilton in a bright and colorful way uh, in front of City Hall. I think that's the value. It's uh, it's like culture. Uh, you know, it has intrinsic value, but it's hard to put a number on it. Uh, did we do comparisons? I think many municipalities like Ottawa, like Toronto, uh, and others have done this kind of thing because it's a good backdrop to uh, what their city is and uh, how that can be reflected uh, n- not only when, when there's media coverage, uh, so that when they take a shot of City Hall, they see, uh, you know, that, that, that it's unmistakably Hamilton. And, uh, you know, when you see, uh, you know, a shot of Toronto City Hall, you see that bright Toronto sign that was uh, actually built to last about six or seven months, uh, which is now falling apart. This one, uh, our sign is going to last some 25 years. Um, you know, these things are a backdrop to what our community is. Uh, you know, in terms of real value, uh, monetary value, I, I would say it probably doesn't exist. Uh, in terms of exposure, uh, it's invaluable. Thanks so much, Frank. Appreciate the call. Six four five thirty two twenty one star nine nine hundred. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger here on the Bill Kelly Show on nine hundred CHML. Sandra, you're next on the program. How are you, Sandra? I'm well. How are you doing, Fred and Bill? Yeah, good morning. Sandra. Go ahead for the mayor. Great. Happy New Year to you. I'm curious why, uh, or if there's any going to be any uh, development with the airport in terms of getting. Folks that want to go to the Caribbean from Toronto. So instead of someone, I'm I'm a Hamiltonian. Mm-hmm. I love my city, um, but I used to be in Toronto. And a lot of folks like I'm hoping there's more activity at the Hamilton Airport right. to get those folks that want to go to the Caribbean for a week or whatever. Instead of going to Pearson, do the extra thirty minute drive to Hamilton or whatever. The parking's better. Yep. Everything is just so much cheaper, and the the airport itself is just so much friendlier. And I'll take the uh, <laughs> your comment on that off here. Okay, so thank much, Sandra. you. Sandra, you, you make an excellent point. That's why we uh, we commissioned a, a private operator in the first place. And when they started, uh, you know, maybe almost twenty years ago now, the uh, the flying capacity for passengers was probably about twenty five thousand per year. Uh, right now, they're up to 300 or 400,000 and have, have, have been as high as 500,000 per year and are looking to continue to grow. The problem is, and this is not a desire on, on the city's part or on the operator's part, is that it's a competitive industry and you need to appeal to the Air Canada's and the WestJets and all of the fly operators that are out there to, uh, to, to look at Hamilton as a 
beginning point destination. And, and you know, we're seeing more and more of that uh, going forward. So there are uh, Caribbean and, uh, and summer or winter vacation uh, flights happening out of the airport. Uh, I can't list them all for you, but I'm sure you can find them uh, on their website. Uh, I believe you can fly to Cuba and the Dominican Republic and a number of other uh, different locations. So there are opportunities for people to uh, go to a vacation spot from Hamilton Airport. Uh, does it afford us all opportunities uh, in terms of the, the range of flights that are happening out of Toronto? No, uh, we don't have that kind of capacity yet, but that is certainly something that uh, the operator and the city is, uh, is, is working towards. And so uh, we've made some significant improvements on flight capacity. Uh, you'll also know that, Sandra, that, uh, you know, store the, the uh, cargo is, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest growth areas in, in this airport, and that's, uh, that's done spectacularly well. But uh, one of the key focuses that the operator is commissioned to do is to continue to grow the, uh, the passenger flight capacity out of that airport, not only, uh, you know, across to Caribbean locations, but also domestically through other locations throughout the city. And more and more of it is happening now, or more and more of it uh, through the country, and more and more of it is happening now than uh, has ever happened before. Uh, and good point. Thanks, Mr. Mayor. To check out uh, on the website there, because I, I know there's a lot of sun destinations, and I know they do a lot of winter business mm-hmm. out of Hamilton Airport. Uh, travel agents don't always recommend it. It doesn't come front of mind for some of them, but it'd be a good idea to check that out on your own. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, let's, let's let's get into this Amazon thing. Of course, yes, or last week, uh, Amazon released their short list of uh, sites, uh, potential sites, I guess, for their uh, their second headquarters location. Uh, Hamilton's not on the list. Uh, and, of course, uh, it took about five seconds for people on social media to start, see, it was a waste of time, it was a waste of money, should never have done this, yada, yada, yada. Uh, first of all, I'm assuming you're disappointed by that, but your thoughts about the, the legitimacy of actually putting something together that many people thought was never going to happen anyway. Well, I, I you know, I thought uh, it was, it was going to be valuable from a whole bunch of reasons, uh, predominantly that it, it really does talk about our, our economic development outreach and uh, how we can actually expand on that uh, through this process. And so we've been able to do that. And uh, we've come up with a, you know, a whole new strategy in terms of Unstoppable Hamilton, which is kind of where we are. Uh, great momentum has been developed, and now we're moving beyond that, and that's, that's positive. Uh, we've gotten good recognition, uh, you know, across the country and, and throughout North America as a a community that's on the move and uh, the buzz that's happening, uh, you know, not only uh, uh, in Hamilton, but uh, across the country is what's going on in Hamilton. Uh, the same kinds of things that uh, that happened in Pittsburgh are now happening in Hamilton. And we're, you know, actively changing our our uh, development dynamic when we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, growth and uh, uptake in terms of culture and restaurants, uh, all the things that people would want our silly city to head towards. So, Nothing but good things have come out of uh, not only the investments that we've made in transit and other things like culture and music, but, uh, but in the Amazon piece, uh, we've demonstrated that we have the ability, uh, we have the capacity, not unlike Pittsburgh, who is a, you know, all, almost considered a sister city of ours that is on the list, uh, that, that we were in, in the running in some manner or another of, of like-minded cities that have the capacity to be able to house this kind of thing. So I, it was more a, uh, uh, for me, it was more a testament to uh, telling ourselves that we are capable 
and that we have the confidence today to, to venture into this kind of thing. And then the, all the material that was created is going to be useful for our economic development drive going forward for other companies that are looking at Hamilton as a uh, investment opportunity. So it's all going to be used. It's all going to be useful. We've already gotten uh, good exposure out of this. Uh, and uh, all of that is invaluable. Uh, it was a, a 50-50 uh, you know, split between private sector and public sector, so you can't say that the taxpayers paid the full freight. The business community understood the value of this as well. And so there was a, a 50-50 arrangement to make that happen, and I think that's the right kind of partnership that we need to continue to work through. You know, the most basic element, as far as I was concerned, and I'm disappointed, and, and, and I, I must admit that, you know, even when you launched this whole idea, I was rather skeptical of being successful in this, given what they were looking for. But uh, if you want to be the ambitious city, you have to be ambitious. And, and you gotta, you got to go for the golden ring sometimes. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, how many times have you seen in business where you, you, you take a run at something, maybe a job you offer even, you don't get it, but you get a call two or three weeks later from, hey, listen, uh, you, you, you were on our mind. We got something else. Are you interested in doing something like this? And this has happened in the economic development department constantly, where, exactly. where you'll, you'll chase one company and they say no, and then all of a sudden somebody else says, hey, I saw your offer. That's pretty good. Can we talk? Right. And so, you know, none of this is going to be wasted effort. Uh, it is it is going to create uh, value down the road. Uh, uh, you know, if, if uh, people think we should sit on our laurels and not take an opportunity to uh, put our, our oar in the water on these kinds of projects, I, I would disagree. We don't want to do them all. And, you know, one of our strategic directions on our economic development is that, you know, let's not go for home runs all the time. Uh, let's get the base hits. Uh, you know, you can be very successful by using that baseball analogy that if you keep getting people on base, you're going to keep having success and you are, you're likely going to win more games than, than not. But every once in a while, an opportunity comes along that really causes you to think about, can we, can we, should we, you know, take a shot at this? Uh, this was one of those opportunities, and uh, I have no regrets for having done that, and I have no doubt that some good value is going to come out of all of this effort. I got a couple of emails and tweets about uh, bus service, and, and I'm going to try to amalgamate them. I hate to use that word, folks, but uh, amalgamate them into maybe one question here, because there is some ongoing concern. I know you're getting into some of the heavy-duty budget discussions in the next few weeks, but uh, this is not about, about LRT at this stage. This is about the bus service itself. Mm -hmm. Still stories about buses that are being canceled. People are, are looking at the HSR service right now and simply saying it's unreliable. How is the city going to tackle this? Well, we, we have and we are, and, uh, you know, we're not there yet. So, uh, now, you know, for anyone that's uh, suggesting that uh, the fix is, uh, you know, going to happen in a couple of weeks, probably that isn't going to be the case. It's going to take a few months. Uh, we've hired a, a number of additional uh, drivers to, uh, to make up for a pool of drivers that can actually fill the, fill the gap so that, that if we have lack of attendance from drivers, that we can go to a pool and actually pull them in and make sure that the... Uh, that the routes are being covered. Uh, you know, there, there needs to be 100% coverage on all of the routes uh, all of the time, and that's that predictable, reliable transit service. Uh, we are investing uh, this year in partnership with the federal government some $76 million on that kind of uh, service reliability and uh, customer experience and, and uh, additional vehicles for, uh, you know, expansion of the transit system. So we're making the right investments, uh, and, you know, we're going to ask our 
our uh, writers out there to be, uh, you know, forgive me for saying this, a little bit more patient than we than than uh, you know, suggesting there's going to be an immediate resolve. But progress is being made, and uh, the intent is to get to 100% reliability. If we can't do that, then we don't have a, a you know a functional transit system. So that's the mission. Uh, give us a few months to kind of get there. Uh, apologize for the uh, the disruption. Uh, we're going to ask all of our uh, ATU members to uh, to help. Uh, the city of Hamilton to ensure that we can get this uh, into 100% reliability. And uh, if, if we can all partner together and make that happen, then uh, we're going to be successful. But you've got a problem with HSR staff, including the drivers, uh, very similar to some of the other departments right now, and that is rampant uh, absenteeism. People are just not coming to work. Uh, I, I guess everybody's got the flu. I don't know what's going on. It, uh, I, we've talked to Eric Tuck, the head of the union, about this, and he says, well, we've got some concerns with the city and with the way that management's going on. So this sounds very much like a personnel issue. Yeah, in, in, in part it is. Uh, when we have the vehicles and we have the routes, uh, it, it's, it's really the, uh, the, the buses need a driver. And uh, if the driver's not there, then uh, we can't deliver that service. So we need uh, all drivers on deck. And, uh, and, you know, I fully understand that there are occasions when, uh, when drivers are not going to be available through uh, health reasons or whatever, they, whatever, the, whatever that is. But we need a pool of drivers to be able to fill that gap on an ongoing basis. And previously it was all done through overtime. Um, uh, which I think is unsustainable. Uh, you know, having having drivers work seventy or eighty hours a week on a on a you know weekly basis is uh, is not a sustainable practice, and that will lead to uh, health concerns and uh, people being overworked and then taking uh, you know additional time off. So we are reducing uh, the overtime and we are getting more regular drivers and regularizing the uh, the schedules a lot more, and that should make the, all the difference in the world in terms of. Uh, Resolving the uh, the uh, the issues for drivers and for the system itself. Uh, Sandra at uh, B Kelly nine hundred chml dot com. Uh, I'll talk about new arenas downtown. Uh, Michael Andlar Bulldogs. There's a whole lot of stuff that she goes on here with. Uh, your thought on that? Uh, have you had discussions with Mr. Andlar and others about a potential arena? I even uh, just uh, to Sandra's point here, I think it was Councillor Skelly who was even talking about doing something up on the Central Mountain as a potential location. Now, your, your thoughts on, on on where and and what if? So, so Mr. Andrelar is fully aware that we're going through a process uh, to determine what we're going to do with the existing facility and uh, how we're going to repurpose that or, or you know, revamp it or does it need a new new facility. That's a process that we're going through that, in, that includes the convention center and Hamilton Place. And so that, that's going to take a few years. Uh, this is not something that's going to be resolved uh, overnight. It's going to take a few years to get through that process. M- fully appreciate the commitment that Mr. Anderlar has made to uh, hockey in Hamilton. I mean, he has been a staunch uh, supporter to ensure that there's a, a hockey product in Hamilton. He formerly had the HL team here. He moved that and, uh, and said, you know what, we're going to have an OHL team here, and that OHL team is doing spectacularly well, and we really appreciate his commitment. Uh, but uh, getting into uh, an arena issue, uh, you know, with the cost that's associated with that is uh, is going to be a complex issue and it's going to take some time for us to sort out what's the best path to go forward here and that includes uh, you know the whether or not we ought to be downtown or whether it ought to be uh, somewhere else and uh, all of that needs to be evaluated and considered and uh, once we do that then we can make some decisions on who we might partner with and uh, really appreciate uh, mr. Andelar's offer and uh, he will be included in all of the discussions going forward because he is uh, one of the major tenants at our Cops Coliseum, our first Ontario Centre. Appreciate the emails and tweets. Uh, our apologies to those that we couldn't get to on the phones, but uh, we'll do this again 
in just a couple of weeks. Thanks so much, Mr. Mayor. Good seeing you again. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see you uh, soon, I'm sure. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We mentioned that City Council is getting into some of the heavy lifting now when it comes to the 2018 budget. And uh, some of the numbers that they're looking at now from city staff are, are rather daunting. And some of the challenges, uh, uh, probably paramount among them right now, is an ongoing uh, list of uh, businesses in the city that are looking for tax reassessment and uh, appeals, and they're winning them. And uh, that's good news, I guess, for the business, not such good news for the city. Joining us to talk about this is Chad Collins, City Councilor for Ward 5, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Chad, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Maybe if you could just uh, encapsulate exactly what the concern is here, because folks may not understand the process and the impact it's going to have on you as a council this year. Yeah, last week we had a, a half-day session on the budget, and Mr. Zagarek gave a very detailed uh, budget overview. And part of the annual budget process includes a discussion every year about our assessment growth. And so, you know, residents, um, you know, have witnessed a rising property values because we see that wave of people coming from Toronto. And just as we've seen the residential boom uh, in, in all areas of the city, um, we're also witnessing a record uh, record growth in the industrial and commercial areas and multi-residential. So we've seen cranes in the city for the first time in a long time. And all of that generates new assessment. And uh, Mr. Zagarek's uh, overview that he provided was that we, we should be at about 1.5% uh, growth, which is a, a very healthy number. But because of assessment appeals, uh, we can subtract uh, 0.4 or half a percent off of that number, which impacts our revenue streams. I mean, our goal and objective around the table uh, is certainly to, to deliver high-quality services to, to residents. But part of the job here um, is to try to in- encourage new growth in the city to generate new taxes without going to the existing tax base. And that comes from um, industrial and primarily commercial operations. And so that, uh, that update last week, um, the highlight... Uh, was that we're seeing a record number of appeals from existing commercial and industrial tenants across the city that's costing us hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, annually. And that number just keeps going up. And I I think as Mr. Zagarek described it, there's an entire industry bill that uh, is out there knocking on doors for some of the industrial giants in the the Bayfront area um, to all of our regional commercial shopping centres Lime Ridge, the Centre on Barton, Eastgate Square have all filed appeals. And really, they have nothing to lose through this process. So just as a residential owner might question from time to time what their assessed value is that's been provided by MPAC, industrial commercial operators have the same option and the same ability to file an appeal. And you can, you can certainly imagine the difference between some of the values that we're talking about. You know, the average residential price in Hamilton, I believe, at this point in time is in the mid-threes, 300000 range. For, for industrial operations, we're talking about, uh, you know, businesses that are worth uh, tens of millions and in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars. And so their tax bills are, are, are fairly large and they help us provide quality services to the community. So it, it came as a shock to everyone that this list keeps expanding and keeps growing. And these appeals are quite costly to the municipality. And as I referenced earlier, it's about a half a percent. And to put it into context, that's probably about $20 um, worth of a residential ratepayers um, uh, tax bill, and so these successful appeals um, are, are causing great strain for not just impact but for the municipality, and it's coming at a cost. 
And, it, and I, as I described it last week, it's probably one of the biggest challenges we'll face through our budget process over the coming years because there's great uncertainty with it. It's hard to budget when you, you don't know what kind of resources you have from one year to the next. And as, as this industrial and commercial base continues to erode their tax bill through these appeals, the burden then falls to residential homeowners. And, um, and, and it's a zero-sum game for, for, the, for, for residents. They're not getting extra services for these additional costs. They're essentially subsidizing the operations of industrial and commercial operators. Now, maybe the most famous case of of the ones you've just uh, uh, mentioned here was the Stelco situation that uh, City Council mm-hmm. uh, got hit over the head with a couple of weeks ago when you found out that uh, the reassessment of that property was significantly less, and there are huge ramifications to that. But I, I'm I'm sure that most of us were not aware that this was happening on a on an ongoing basis. But the fact that that became such a big story, Chad, I guess is is almost fodder for these these guys go knocking on doors saying, "Hey, That's you know right. what Stelco did? Hey, I can do that for you." That's right, and oftentimes these companies that are these appraisers are knocking on doors. They're, they, they, you know, their approach to the to the industrial operation or the commercial operator is: look, we'll do all the work. You sign the paperwork. We'll attend with MPAC. We'll we'll file the appeal, and and they're in some cases they're paid a percentage of what they save the organization, and so they're it's a very lucrative business and an industry that continues to grow, and it's all at the expense of not just the municipality, but local ratepayers who are then forced to pick up the tab for these successful appeals. And with the long list of those people who are showing up in front of MPAC, you can, you can imagine, Bill, that they're, you know, they're accustomed to dealing with a certain number of files in a year. Then they're, at this point, they're forced to pick and choose which ones they'll actually defend in front of an arbitrator. And the municipality then is forced with, with the prospect of having to pick up that appeal. So uh, if I can relay, the appeal is put in, let's say, for a for a U.S. steel property, MPAC may say for a large appeal like this, well, we don't have the resources to, to, uh, to, to prove our case in terms of how we value that property. Municipality, if you're interested in taking on the fight with this appellant, then you do the due diligence. You go and, and, and get the information that justifies why MPAC has placed this value on the property. So the burden then not only falls to the municipality to do the work, if we're unsuccessful, we're then, you know, forced to pay the bill at the end of the day, or in, in, in this case, we'd be pay- passing those extra costs along to residential homeowners. So, it, But it, that's, that's even bizarre, more bizarre, than, really than or, because they're essentially telling the city to defend a number that, they, that the city didn't come up with. It was impact Correct. that made the assessment in the first place, and they're yep. saying, unless you guys want to get nicked out of this, you better, yep. you better build a case for it. Well, that's going to cost time and money on the city's part. It's exactly it, Bill. And so not only are we forced at the end of the day to pay for unsuccessful appeals, we're also forced to take a very proactive role in the appeal process. And to be fair, we've done that on some of the larger files in the past. We've inserted ourselves into the ArcelorMittal uh, appeal. We've inserted ourselves as an interested party uh, at the impact proceedings when U.S. Steel was in front of them. And so I can give examples over the years of where we've said, look, we put up our hand and say, we have an issue with the value you've placed here. We want to make our case. Now, though, we're running into situations where MPAC isn't even involved in that process. They just don't have the capacity to, to undertake uh, a, pr- a presentation and to provide information on all of these appeals. So then the burden then falls to the municipality. And our fear is that that may be the case for the U.S. Steel lands, um, and you covered this extensively. Uh, uh, you know, that was the 218 value that we've talked about. Yeah. They still have an active application for this calendar year, or sorry, for last calendar year, 217. And that one is in front of MPAC in the next couple of weeks. So our fear is that no one from MPAC will show up at the podium to say, here's how we came to those or that decision. 
uh, for 217. And it's a lot different than the 218 one, but there's still a cost to the city. And our fear is if that scenario unfolds along those lines, you know, the burden then will fall to our staff to prove a number that MPAC has provided. It, the system is broken and um, it really needs to be fixed sooner rather than later, much like the province has done with the OMB uh, process. And I almost hesitate to even bring this up because here we are having this conversation and some business people may be listening to this and saying, hey, I think I'll try that. And mm-hmm. I don't blame them for doing that. I mean, anybody that thinks they can get a deal on their taxes is fine, but uh, you've got to go in that with eyes wide open and understand that, look, you might get a short-term benefit to this, but in the long term, it's going to cost you more because your taxes are going to go up to pay for the lower taxes, which sounds rather bizarre, but that's that's the system that's been created here. It is, and, and to further complicate matters, Bill, the province has said that um, they're, ta- they're capping increases that can be passed along to the industrial and commercial sectors. And so traditionally, when someone appeals, the cost is then spread out to other uh, tax classes. And, and so in this instance, though, the province has, has thresholds, and they say that if uh, you're above a certain, certain threshold in your, with your rate that you apply to commercial and industrial, you can't increase it anymore. So these successful appeals then, we can't go to other commercial operators and say, oh, by the way, Limeridge was successful in their tax appeal. Now we have to spread this across all users. What the province has in place are rules that force municipalities, in, in this case of Hamilton, to pass those on to one class only, and that's the residential ratepayer. So that, you know, we're, we're almost fighting through this whole process with one hand tied behind our back. And that's in the context of trying to solve the city's you know, budget issues that we grapple with every year. We've, we've been fairly successful the last number of years in terms of the rate and how we compare to other municipalities. But the issue that we have here is that it just makes that job all that more, much more difficult. And it makes it harder to accomplish these budget targets when we see these wild valuations uh, placed on businesses or properties from one year to the next. And, and that's sort of the you know, the, the, the white flag that Mr. Zuckerberg was kind of waving in front of us on Friday was that this situation is going to continue to get worse. As you just said, as word gets out that these appraisal companies are out there and will ha- help have the ability to help businesses, industrial and commercial, lower their expense line through their municipal taxes, they'll just be a bigger lineup and a bigger lineup and a bigger lineup until the province decides to change the legislation and, and, and make it a more equitable process one that's certainly more equitable for municipalities and one that's more equitable for, you know, the person who's right now sitting at home who owns their own home and sees these costs foisted upon their own tax bill. Yeah, except that this is not on the government's radar, the provincial government's radar. I mean, they're not even talking about this. When I had a discussion about tax inequity, this is about a year or so ago, mm-hmm. uh, with some folks from Queen's Park, they essentially said, look, it's up to the city to do that. And besides, Impact is an arm's length organization. Oh. Uh, they, they created the beast, and now they want <laughs> yeah. to disassociate themselves from it. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 you know, as a footnote to this whole story, you just mentioned it, you know, we pay for Impact. So it's a provincial organization. Municipalities are told every year what they're required to pay to uh, to help uh, offset the cost of their operation, and and this year their costs are going up uh, well over two percent. I think they they're coming in at two point eight percent, which is well above our one and a half percent guideline that city departments are forced to come in at. And the extra cost to us, on top of the discussion we just had, is about one hundred and seventy to one hundred and eighty thousand dollars we're paying just for their staff to undertake this process. Which you know, with all the warts that we just talked about. Is, is just really unfair. But with that in mind, you want to talk about a broken process. I guess the, the bottom line here 
is the numbers that they come up with initially. I, I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that an appeal is successful, just about every appeal uh, by business seems to be successful, tells me that the numbers that they're putting out there on the tax bills are out of whack. Yeah, and, and, and so there, there are circumstances where we go through the whole appeal process and there's a decision rendered uh, you know, by the arbitrator. Or in other instances, it's about mediation. And so we have, we have undertaken mediated settlements in the past and, and, you know, we're just trying to stop the bleeding in, in that sense. And so it, it just becomes clear over time that the, the deck is kind of stacked against not just council, but the community. And you'll hear, in fact, we have a correspondence in front of us today at Audit and Admin, another issue related to MPAC, where the Port Authority has encouraged some of their tenants to build their buildings without a building permit. And uh, they can do that under their federal legislation. They get an engineer stamp, and these buildings, and in this case, tanks go up, and if there's no building permit, that's the trigger uh, for MPAC. To un- all building permits are, are forwarded to MPAC. That's the trigger to determine what the new building or buildings uh, will pay in taxes. Uh, because the port has gone ahead without a building permit, we've, we have properties on, in, in the port that haven't paid taxes for a number of years. And, and we just, you know, it's, it's, it's really unbelievable that we have a system in place with all the modern technology that's available to us today that these types of things would occur. And so again, instead of MPAC going out and somebody visiting the port to see the new construction, um, you know, it falls upon the city to do that due diligence. And, and again, we're talking about revenues that aren't coming to the city that are properly owed to it that, that creates budget pressures for us um, from one calendar year to the next. So I think what you'll see, Bill, you know, the answer to all this, again, will be sending correspondence to the province. You mentioned it, and appropriately so. It's not even on their radar screen. Uh, this is the same organization where the ombudsman several years ago um, listed a, a, a list of 26 recommendations, I believe it was, that said, you know, MPAC is broken, needs to be fixed. They've implemented most of those, but they haven't gone far enough. Obviously, from our conversation and the information you and I are talking about, there's still a long ways to go. And, and I, my fear is, as you just stated, it's not even on the provincial radar screen. It may not be for many years to come. But when you have this discussion around the committee level and eventually the council level, mm-hmm. it, this is what fuels this, this, this fear-mongering that goes on within this community mm-hmm. about council taking drastic measures. I mean, I'm still hearing from rural councillors, and I don't want to get into the ward boundary thing, but about, mm-hmm. you know, well, it's us versus them, and those city guys are going to eliminate things like area rating, and they're going to nail mm-hmm. everybody, and everybody's going to get clobbered in taxes. But mm-hmm. this is this is the kind of pressure that initiates those conversations and starts that kind of rumor mill. It does, and I, and I can say on this one, we're united. I think everyone around the table, um, you know, understands the implications here that the, these 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 mediated settlements or decisions that are coming about from you know hundreds, literally hundreds of commercial and industrial properties have a, have a, an impact on the bottom line. And Bill, just to be clear, um, these businesses are appealing. Uh, in, in instances, Mr. Zagarek, I forgot to mention, said, you know, the steel sector year over year continues every year they appeal. And the valuations that they were given by impact through their process, they already received a 25% reduction in their land values. So, I mean, it, it's just pure greed. Uh, these people are seeing a reduction through impact through the regular process without an appeal. And even with a 25% reduction in their land values, they're still placing an appeal to impact, which I think is unconscionable. And, you know, we should be putting a list in the paper of all those companies that have filed appeals, how much money they've, they've taken off their tax bills over the year, years. And, um, and I, you know, let's give the community a sense 
an idea and a taste of who's taking advantage of a broken system. Maybe not a bad idea. Uh, Chad, mm-hmm. I know you got to run back to a meeting. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Bill. That's uh, Chad Collins, of course, the counselor for Ward 5. And, and just keep that in mind. I, I understand fully that it, if you had a chance to do it on Peel and get a reduced tax bill, of course you'd jump at it, right? Uh, but when all these businesses are doing this, even after their head reductions in their property taxes, the city has to make that number up. And that means you, me, as residential taxpayers, are the ones that are going to take it right in the wallet when this stuff happens. That's the biggest problem there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.